Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray this morning that the words that we've just sung would ring true in our minds and our hearts, that we would be captivated by the Lamb who was slain and is now exalted as the King over all things, and that we indeed have crowned Him Lord of our lives, even as you have made Him Lord over all things. And I pray, Father, that as a result, though pain and difficulty and suffering and our lack of understanding what you are doing in the world and in our lives can feel overwhelming, that we will feel secure in you, that we will trust you, and that it will be well with our soul. And Father, I pray that if that is not where we are at this morning, that after we look to your word today, that indeed we will find ourselves in that place. Father, we pray that you would... Open our minds and our hearts this morning to receive your word. The voice that we hear would be your voice through the scriptures. Father, no man would receive the glory for the coming minutes, but that we would glorify you as you meet us here in your word, ministering to us your life-giving words, your words that correct and encourage and assure us of your love and faithfulness to the end of our days and beyond. We ask all this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Well, I hope you've got your Bible, and I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 13 this morning. Psalm 13. As we think about our times together here at Providence Bible Fellowship on Sunday mornings, on the whole, I think our services tend to be upbeat. They tend to be full of rejoicing. And and why not? We have experienced salvation from the depths of sin that are nearly unimaginable. The salvation that we have has come to us from a Savior whose depth of love has outpaced the depth of our sin in every possible way. He willingly gave Himself for us, but as we have sung, death could not contain Him. Rising again, He is our eternal Savior, our everlasting King, whose glory knows no end. And so we gather together to worship in His name, knowing that every spiritual blessing is ours in Him. We have every reason to rejoice, loved ones. But this morning, I want to ask, I want to put the question to you, is our rejoicing more than mere happiness. I don't want to set a hard rule on definitions, but generally speaking, happiness is tied to our circumstances. Things are going right in our lives, and therefore we are happy. Things are not going right in our lives, and therefore we are sad. But joy, true rejoicing, tends to be something deeper, something farther down in the depths of our heart and soul. Consider, for example, that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. His circumstances through that experience were terrible in almost every way imaginable. 
physically abused, socially scorned and rejected, spiritually condemned by God. He was not happy. But Hebrews says he still knew joy. So again, we ask ourselves, is our rejoicing in God on Sundays, or really any time in our lives, based on more than mere circumstance? Do do we show up in a good mood and are able to sing and rejoice because things are good? But if things are not good, what, what is our response? Can we worship joyfully through tears in the midst of suffering? Think about Job. Some of his cattle was raided, stolen from him, taken away. Other of his livestock was consumed by fire from heaven. Multiple servants were murdered in the process, and his children were all killed by a rushing wind that blew the house down upon them. All in one day. It was devastating. And he himself was devastated. We're told that after hearing all of this, a servant after servant after servant came in with this bad, horrific news. He tore his robe and he shaved his head as a sign of grief and mourning. But then, chapter 1 verse 20, then he fell on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. Our ability to worship, our ability to have joy in God must be able to go deeper than merely the circumstances of our everyday lives. When the job goes away, when the marriage ends, when the doctor says you've got to have surgery, when the doctor says, I'm sorry, but surgery is not going to help anything. When you watch your child breathe her last breath, can we still rejoice in the Lord? Can we still worship Him? Even if it's only through tears, our hope and our joy and our worship, again, must be able to go past our circumstances. It must come from a place that is deeper than that. But you say, how how does that happen? How How do we worship that way? How do we lift our eyes to heaven when life seems to have its mission to grind us into the dust? And when tears are flowing from an overwhelming flood of trouble, Well, thankfully, God has not left us to grope around in the dark trying to figure out how to worship that way. Instead, He has given us His Word. Specifically, He is giving us the Psalms. And this morning, we're going to look at a type of a Psalm that we haven't really looked at much before in our series, a Psalm of Lament. These Psalms come from the experience of suffering in the lives of God's people, and these laments teach us how to grieve as God's people. Rather than ignore our grief or be ashamed of our grief, lament shows us that it's okay to grieve. It's okay to sing the blues. Psalms of lament are pervasive in the book of Psalms. They are both individual and communal. That is, individuals can lament what is happening, and they can also lament on behalf of what is happening in the entire nation. Their form is generally the same. They begin with, Words of grief and complaint to God about what is happening. Perhaps even cursing some enemy that is the source of their pain and suffering. They recount their struggles and their sorrows, but then there is a turn. Psalmist turns toward God in faith, trusting Him despite their dreadful circumstances. They ask for help and assure themselves that God will give them help. Not because they deserve it, but because of God's unchanging character. 
So this morning we want to look at one of David's laments in the hopes that he will serve as a divinely inspired example, teaching us how to lament in our own day of trouble. So I encourage you to stand in the, in the honor of the reading of God's Word as we look at Psalm 13 this morning. Please follow along as I read. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We aren't given any, re- de- any real details about what is going on in David's life that would provoke this psalm, this prayer, but we really don't need to know those circumstances in order to make sense of the situation. And in some ways, lack of particulars means that these words are more easily taken in for our own vocabulary in prayer. Notice that like most laments, David begins by describing the agony of suffering, the agony of suffering. We see this in verses 1 through 2. This phrase, how long, appears throughout the Bible, particularly the Psalms. Uh, and yet here we see it with, given with, its most, with the most amount of urgency more than anywhere else. Nowhere else do we see four times in quick succession the psalmist asking, how long, how long, how long? Why was David suffering so long? Why was he longing so much for God to act? In these two verses, David describes the feelings that have been brought on by his suffering and why he is crying out to the Lord. First, he says that he feels forgotten by God. He feels forgotten by God. He begins by lamenting, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? David feels like God is gone from his life. Now, by itself, that would be terrible, but remember who David is, or was. He's with the Lord now. Remember who he was, who he is while this psalm is being written. He was the young shepherd boy that God sent a prophet to look for and anoint as his choice for king in Israel. He was the man that God put on the throne and entered into a covenant with such that he would establish his throne forever. As long as there was a throne in Israel, descendants from David would be on that throne He was providentially positioned to be a type of the promised Messiah. In every way, David was God's man. But he doesn't feel like it. But whatever the circumstances are, whatever the difficulty is in his life, David feels as if he's been discarded. As if God, who's made all these promises, has now forgotten all about him. He's abandoned him. And so he cries out, how long, O Lord, how long will you forget me? David feels forgotten by God. He also feels forsaken by God. Forsaken by God. More than just God's not thinking about me. God has actively drawn away from him. David asks, how long will you hide your face from me? His words bring to mind the benediction given to the priests to pronounce over the people that they might receive the Lord's blessing. 
Number six says that the priests are to be before the gathering of God's people and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That imagery of God's face shining over the people is tied to God blessing his people. God pouring out his grace upon them. But notice, David feels like there's no blessing for him. David feels like he's been rejected by God rather than embraced and supported. God, why are you hiding your face from me? How long are you going to keep doing that? How long, oh Lord, he cries out. Forgotten, forsaken, abandoned by God. Have you ever felt this way? Has life so kicked you down that you feel as if God is far from you, that he is forgotten all about you, that he's abandoned you and left you in the dust? Have you ever felt crushed by the difficulties in life and wondered, where are you, Lord? Have you forgotten about me? Am I of no consequence, no importance to you? Can't you see my suffering? If so, then like David, it may have led you to feel fearful in heart. Fearful in heart. This is the the third description that David has of his emotions, his feelings before God in the midst of his trouble. He's fearful in heart. In verse 2, he pleads, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Here David is beginning to wonder why all this is happening to him. He's beginning to wonder if there's something he can do to get himself out of his struggles. God seems silent. Seems like he's not answering his prayers. And so rather than receive counsel from the Lord, he's got to take counsel in himself. His mind begins to whirl around and fearfulness begins to grip him. And and the same thing may happen to us. We like to be in charge, don't we? We like to know what's going on in our life. We like to be the decision makers. We like to be the master of our fate, the captain of our ship. And when that's not possible, and we're calling out to God... And, and there's no answer that seems to be coming. What, what ends up happening? I can figure this out. I can get myself. I, I can fix this problem. I can get out of this. And that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Because what ends up happening is, as we lose our grip on control in life, we begin to languish in fear and anxiety. When we try to figure it out on our own, we begin to enter into a state of constant worry about our lives. And whether we say it out loud or whether we simply ponder in our hearts, we begin asking, how long, O Lord, how long? But David's not done. David's not done expressing his emotional agony here, given his unique position as God's anointed king, the ruler in God's kingdom. A kingdom that while not everyone believed the Lord, followed him faith, or even like David, he has often been the target of attack. And yet, what did he have? The assurance that he was God's man on God's throne in God's kingdom. God had his back. But now that support seems to be gone. And so David feels frustrated in defeat. Frustrated in defeat. How long, he pleads, How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Where is the promised victory, David is saying? God, you were supposed to be here to fight these battles for me. You were supposed to give strength to my right hand. You were supposed to give me the victory. That's what you promised. Where are you? What is happening? Why does the enemy have his foot on my neck? 
How long will these sinners be triumphant over me? Aren't I your king? Why are they opposing me? And why are you not doing anything about it? Now, most of us don't have physical enemies. We don't have an arch nemesis. We don't have the nations that are saying, if I could just take this person out, then then it'll be good for us. That's not the experience of our life, thankfully. But you know, the Bible says that every single person who has ever lived has one common enemy, death. Modern society, modern medicine, modern psychology can try to mitigate that by saying, you know, death's just a part of life. We just accept it. We move on. That's not the Bible's view. The Bible says death is an enemy. Death is an interloper into God's good creation. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And so death is painful. Death is painful. One time it was especially painful several years ago, maybe even 10 years ago now. When we lived in Michigan, I was at a small graveside funeral. I watched as this young man in his 20s held the baby of his, the body of his lifeless stillborn baby in what was little more than a fancy shoebox, all during the graveside service. When that service ended, he was still holding his lifeless child and not knowing what to do. One of the most pitiable scenes I've, I've ever seen, he actually climbed down into the grave that was already dug out and gently placed the box in the grave and was helped back out and stood there weeping over his dead child. I've been in hospital rooms and watched the life expire out of people. I've been in counseling rooms and seen the devastating effects of sin in relationships, abuse put upon people. But in that moment, I felt like this was the cruelest example of the effects of sin I'd ever seen in the world. It wasn't even my child! But I was absolutely beside myself. With tears in my eyes, this thought flashed through my mind. Death seems to be winning. Death seems to be winning. Welling up with me with this same agonizing plea. How long, O oh Lord? How long will this continue? How long before Christ returns and puts an end to all this suffering, all this death? Forgotten, forsaken, fearful, frustrated by difficult situations. What do you do when you feel like that? Notice David doesn't confess any sin here. If you remember back when Pastor Rick preached on Psalm 51, David knows how to confess. David knows how to, knew how to confess Far better than most of us do. He knows how to be honest about his sin before God. But there's nothing like that here. Sometimes God does bring suffering into our life to get our attention about sin, but not always. There's no one-to-one correspondence. Sometimes our suffering has absolutely nothing to do with sin in our life. And so though we may be tempted to wonder if it's not sin, maybe I'm not really a believer. Maybe I've not really trusted in Christ for salvation. And so maybe God's love is not upon me. Maybe God has not forgotten me. Maybe God never knew me. Well, David was surely a real believer. Yet from the Psalms, we know that this experience of suffering and feelings of abandonment were not rare things in his life. 
David has penned multiple psalms of lament. Read First and Second Samuel. David knew suffering and difficulty and pain in life. And so, for us, when we experience things like that, we should not look inward and try and scrape out. Where is the sin? Where is the sin? i got to confess the suffering will go away. Or, or, or look inside and say, what's the matter with you? Why aren't you believing? Why aren't you believing? Why aren't you believing? What's wrong with you? God doesn't love you. No, 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 no. We don't look inward. We look upward. That's what David does. That's what David sets the example for us. We look up to our heavenly Father. Because a big temptation in times of difficulty and feelings of desertion is to turn away from God altogether. If it seems like he's forgotten about me, then I'm going to forget about him. We stop praying and we just sit and languish in the agony of our suffering. But David sets a different example for us. Yeah, he wails out in pain to God. This is not a light thing that he's praying about or he's experiencing. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just offer his complaint. He keeps praying. And in the next few verses, we see his appeal for help. Here in verses 3 through 4, we see the appeal for help. Though God feels distant, David knows he's listening. He knows that God never stops hearing the prayers of his people. David may feel abandoned, but he still prays. He still prays. He calls out for help. And notice how he prays. Once again, this is meant to be an example for us. Maybe you need to pray this way. David shows that we can pray out to the Lord. We can call out to him for help. And we can say, remember my despair. Remember my despair. In verse 3, David says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He's saying, look at me. Remember me down here. Remember what I'm going through. Give me an answer to the question that I'm asking. How long? How long? My request for help. God, look and listen and respond. Some of you may have had or may still have young kids at home. and Sometimes they do something that they think is worthy of your attention. Something that's really fantastic and spectacular. Sometimes something that no one else has ever done before. Or... Maybe they've got a sibling or a neighborhood friend and they have committed some vile transgression against them in their mind. But whatever it is, they, they, they marked on their paper, they took their popsicle, whatever it was, but, but they, they feel as if life is over and they need you to know about it. Whatever it is, joy or pain, they need you to know. And they're like, dad, 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 mom, 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 mom. And, and maybe you're on the phone and you say, just, just give me one minute. Is anybody bleeding? No, wait one minute, Okay. And they're like, no, 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 no. Or I'm like, i got to finish this email. Just give me one second, one second. And they're like, no, no, look, 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 look. And sometimes they even grab your face and they turn it around and say, look, look, look. Has that ever happened to anybody before? That's kind of what David is like here. He's calling out over. He says, look, God, God, notice why he does that, why he can feel like he can do that. He says, consider and answer me, oh, Lord, my God, my God. The Lord is not some far-off deity who is unfazed by the daily events of the universe. No, He's my God, David says. He's my Lord who's promised good to me. And even for us today, in Christ, He is our Heavenly Father who has committed Himself to us. So we can cry out, Father, can't you see what I'm going through? 
Look and listen. Remember me in my pain. Answer me, God. And then second, David teaches us further what to pray. We ask, restore me from death. Restore me from death. Sleep is often a a metaphor for death in the Bible. And here in verse 3, that is made explicit. Again, we don't know the specific situation David is in. But talk of being overwhelmed by enemies should lead us to, to take this literally. His life is probably in real danger. And notice what he prays. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Light up my eyes. That, that reminds me of, and maybe you as well, 1 Samuel 14. Saul's made a rash vow about, uh, you know, they're trying to fight the, route the Philistines. And he says, you guys aren't working hard enough. And, and anybody who eats any food before the battle's won, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, well, that's kind of dumb, isn't it? I mean, don't soldiers need uh, energy to fight? Anyway, his son Jonathan does not hear that order. And as he's in the midst of, uh, of, of chasing after the enemy, he sees honeycomb dripping with good, sweet, nutritious, energy-giving honey. And so he laps up a handful and he, he just sucks that stuff down. And you know what the text says? It says, his eyes became bright. His eyes became bright. In other words, he got more juice in his jump, okay? God, 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 God gave him strength through this symbol provision of honey to go and to keep fighting. And David is asking for something similar here. He says, I need strength for the battle. I feel like my life is waning and I need to be restored. I need life. I need encouragement. I need energy because I don't want to die at the hands of my enemies. And, and, and moving that appeal from just being restored to, to, to saying, I don't want to die at the hands of my enemies. He's also praying, God, rescue me from dishonor. Rescue me from dishonor. This is the third thing that he asks for in his appeal for help. Rescue me from dishonor. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Again, remember, David is not just an individual here. He's not just an individual. He is praying as David, but also as David, king of Israel. He is the one who represents God's rule, not just in Israel, but in the world. He is God's representative to the people of Israel and to the Gentile nations all around. And so what happens? If David goes down in battle, if David is dishonored, then God is also dishonored. God is also not made much of in the world as he wants to be. He is not glorified. And so David is aware of this. He wants not just his reputation, but God's reputation not to be dishonored. The last thing he wants is people rejoicing at his defeat because that means they're rejoicing at the Lord's apparent defeat. And in all of this, in all of this... Notice the turn that David is making. The psalm began with devastating appeals from, from, from a man who just is beside himself. He feels utterly abandoned by God. And it's, it's almost raw emotion pouring out in those first couple of verses. But now, what does he do? He, he continues to pray. He, 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 before he said, God's forgotten me. God's abandoned me. God's not listening to me. But he keeps praying. More than that, it's not just emotion. Now he's using reason. He's making arguments, all reasons and arguments that we can make in our lives as well. How can he do that? Well, he, he did it. He did it by faith. 
by faith. David felt shipwrecked, but he never stopped trusting God in the midst of that. And so in these last verses, we see the assurance of faith. We see the assurance of faith. Think about everything that we've seen so far. Think about the distress that he was in. Notice what happens in verse 5. I'm going to read beginning at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Nothing about David's circumstances have changed between verses 1 through 4 and verse 5. And yet through pain and suffering, David continues to look at the Lord through the eyes of faith. This is as we look throughout these pages of the Bible, an essential element of biblical lament. As one author says, it's believing what you know to be true, even though the facts of suffering might call that belief into question. And notice what this faith looks like in David's life. First, he shows faith in God's love. Faith in God's love. Verse 5. I have trusted in your steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord is His enduring commitment to His people. He has fixed His attention upon them with an unshakable grip, like the constant of gravity or the rising of the sun each day. So the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. You know, over the last year or so, we've had uh, uh, quite a few weddings at this building. And it's great. And you know what every single couple has promised to do? To love one another till death do us part. You know what? God makes that same pledge to you. I'm going to love you till death do us part. But guess what? He never dies. He never dies. And so even when we die, His love continues. The Lord's love never grows old. It never tires out. It never seeks another. And this committed covenant love is not some abstract quality in God. Rather, David is choosing to trust God because of what he has seen and what he has experienced in his acts of loving kindness towards his people. That is, he has experienced personally and he has seen intentionally the salvation that God has given to his people. And so David has faith in God's love because he has faith that comes from God's salvation. Faith from God's salvation. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. When when, when David speaks of salvation, he's not just thinking about forgiveness, but every rescue the Lord has provided. So so in, in the Garden of Eden, did he leave humanity in its sin? I mean, he could have. Right? God doesn't owe anyone salvation, doesn't owe anyone forgiveness, doesn't owe rescue to anyone. He could have said, well, I told you what not to do and you did it and now you're done. And now all of humanity is going to be destroyed. But he didn't do that, did he? He came in and he brought salvation. 
the promise of a son. Through, through provision that we might be brought back to God. That even better than how it was in Eden. And then humanity continued to get even worse, it seemed. And so what did God say in Genesis 6? I've had enough. That every intention and desire of, of mankind is utterly wicked. We're starting over. And you know, once again, he could have ended it. And instead, he saves Noah. He, he rescues them from the judgment of the flood and says, we're starting back over with humanity. Father Abraham, who had many sons. How did he have those sons? Well, read the Bible. He's a pagan. He does not know the name of the Lord. And God calls out to him. God rescues him out of the judgment that would have come and says, if you will trust me and you will do what I say, I will lead you to a new land. I will give you a new family. And through you, I will bless all nations. And Abraham said, I will trust you and I will follow you. He rescued Abraham. And in doing so, he rescued all of us. Because Paul says the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of that son given to Abraham was Christ. And we, when we trust him, are put in him. So now we are sons of Abraham by faith. And we could go on down the list all the way up to David's day. Every provision of clean water and quail and manna throughout uh, the, the people's wanderings, even their exodus from Egypt, every rescue David is able to rejoice in. From the people's life collectively down to his. And for us, how much more reason do we have to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord? For how has salvation come to us? It has come through the culmination of the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the limitless fountain from which every blessing of salvation flows. And yet, what did it cost Him to give that salvation to us? It was by Him coming into this world, experiencing all of the pain and suffering of life that this sinful world affords, just as we have experienced it. Yet He did so with a confident, consistent faith in His heavenly Father. Hebrews 5 says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. Jesus was not a stranger to suffering or lament. That this very psalm, Psalm 13, could have been on his lips easily in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was anticipating what was to come. The betrayal, the beatings, the unjust trial, and his execution at the cross. When we read that passage of Jesus in the Garden, we, we see a trembling Jesus. We see a Jesus who is aware of what is about to take place, who is falling on his face in prayer. Not just of the physical things, but of the impending spiritual judgment that would be poured out on his righteous soul as he bore the guilt of his people's sins, our sins, before God. And yet he can move from that garden full of sorrow. We're told he was sorrowful even unto death to standing triumphant, facing his betrayer and the soldiers who came without a hint of fear. How? Because he trusted his heavenly Father. 
He trusted in his steadfast love and the promise that he would not leave him in death but raise him triumphant ultimately over all of his enemies. He trusted in the promise that though he would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, for the transgressions of his people. That upon him would be the chastisement that would bring us peace. And that out of the anguish of his soul, he would see and be satisfied. Because through his sufferings, many would be accounted righteous. That's why he could have joy in the face of the cross. And God was faithful to those promises. Jesus was indeed raised because God had dealt bountifully with him, even as David anticipated being deltifully bound with in his own life. How much more than all we trust our Heavenly Father. Whatever the suffering is that we're going through, we can remember this, Christ was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. Christ was judged so that we will never be judged. Christ was cursed by God so that we will never be cursed. Christ has done everything to secure our eternal fellowship with God. And so I have to pause and just say this morning, have you trusted in Christ for your Savior? Have you experienced the life-giving freedom as the chains of sin have fallen from your, your, your life, as you find forgiveness in life with God because you've said, uh, I desperately need someone to make me right with God. And you've seen in Christ the one, the only one who can provide it and you've trusted in Him. If not, if not, trust Him today. Turn away from the path of sin that you were on that's only going to lead to death and misery for eternity and receive salvation that is freely offered in Christ. Then you will join the fellowship of His people. And those who are in Christ, despite any measure of trouble, can continue in the assurance of faith because our assurance is rooted in the salvation that God has accomplished. We may rightly cry out in lament, How long, O Lord? How long until you bring relief to my suffering? But you notice David didn't pray, will you, O Lord, bring an end? Just how long? Because he knew one day, at some point, God would bring it to an end. Same with us. Whether it's in this life or the life to come through the resurrection, we need not doubt the steadfast love of the Lord. And that means that we can have faith for God's praise. This is the last thing that we see from our text this morning. The assurance of faith means that we have faith for God's praise. David says, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. His present pain doesn't crush his faith. It doesn't leave him hopeless, just the opposite. His honest dealing with his real suffering before God allows him to better focus on God. To remember who He is and what He has done and confidence for what He will continue to do. Based on God's faithfulness in the past, He is assured of His faithfulness in the present and in the future. And so perhaps through tears, David can still sing praises to the Lord. Several years ago, D.A. Carson was speaking at a conference and he told the story of a man named Mike Wheeler. Mike had gone out as a missionary to Bolivia There he learned Spanish fluently, he was involved in theological education, he genuinely loved the people, and he seemed in the minds of those that sent him to be an ideal missionary. When Mike turned 30, 
God provided another missionary, a lady on the field that captured Mike's heart. They fell in love and they were soon married. Then they had their first daughter. She was about two years old and Mike's mission agency said, we think this guy is capable of even more. And so they said, we want to bring you off of the field. We want you to get your PhD and we think that we will be able to multiply your effectiveness in Bolivia. And he said, if God gets the glory, then yeah, let's do it. And so they they moved back to the States. He barely got into his program and his wife developed an aggressive cancer. She went through surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and slowly things began to look up. It looked like that she would recover. And about that time that it looked like that she would be okay, Mike also developed cancer. It was an aggressive kind of stomach cancer. In fact, it was so severe that the hospitals in Chicago where they lived said, we're not going to treat you. You are beyond hope. You will just become a big check mark in the failure common column of our, of our uh, cancer department, so uh, we can't do anything for you. Thankfully, the mission agency stuck with him, and they paid to send him to the Mayo Clinic. When he arrived, they looked at what was going on in his body, and they said, we cannot promise you any results of success. And instead, they removed 90% of his stomach, loaded him up with experimental drugs for his cancer. With much of his stomach gone, he could only eat in small amounts every two or three hours. And Mike began, miraculously it seemed, to pull through. And that's when his wife's cancer came back. And this time she died from it. After a few years from his wife's passing, Mike finished his theological program And he was back in a supporting church giving a testimony about his desire to go back and serve the Lord in Bolivia. And Carson, who was in the audience at that church, said for the first 30 minutes, all that Mike could talk about was the love and the goodness and the grace of God in his life. Say, how how could he do that? Was was he delusional? What's the matter with that guy? No. He wasn't delusional. He understood the pain. He understood the difficulty. But he knew, ultimately, like David, that the Lord had dealt bountifully to him. Carson says, when you weigh the cancer against the forgiveness of sins, when you consider that the wife who suffered so much was now in glory with her heavenly Father, when you consider that God preserved one parent to raise that precious little girl. When you see all of the family and friends who stepped up and covered all of the medical bills and provided loving support and encouragement and prayer. Carson says, when you, when you weigh all of the difficulty in this life against 30 trillion billion years of eternity with God, then suddenly you start talking like the Apostle Paul, who himself lived a life of abject suffering and yet could say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. But when we find ourselves in the depths of suffering, in life's pain, let us learn to lament. Because lament says that we don't have to deny our troubles. We don't have to put on a happy face. We don't have to pretend that everything is okay. We can be real and honest and raw in saying, even to God, this hurts! God, how long, how long, oh Lord, will you let this go? And yet, 
we can also say, I have trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that in this life or the life to come, He will allow me to rejoice fully and finally in His salvation because He has dealt bountifully with me through His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We're thankful, God, that so many people try to denigrate Christianity or you and what you've told us to do and make it seem as if we're blind to what is happening in this world. Father, we know that indeed suffering in this life is real and yet you have not forsaken us. You have not forgotten us. You have not in any way abandoned us, Lord. And so like David, we can continue to persist in faith. We can trust you because unlike David, who anticipated the fullness of the promises that you made about the coming salvation. Father, we have seen the fulfillment of those promises. We have seen incredibly how you have kept your word across thousands of years to bring your son. He might offer his life for our sins and be raised for our justification. To be the one who even now intercedes for us and cares for us like a good and loving shepherd. And so, Father, we can be those that endure difficulty and pain and suffering through faith in you. We pray that you would do this work in us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. We pray that in the coming moments, as we continue to reflect on this sermon, Father, that you will encourage our hearts. Help us to learn to lament. 